0: All right. It's great to see you this morning. Be seen by you. Thanks for spacing out. See, the team's so good. They know that if they sit spaced out, then I actually have someone to turn to, and I don't have to be pretending like there's people seated on this side of the room or sitting on that side of the room. Um, I just want to give us a quick update. Many of you probably know this already. If you're on the prayer chat, you heard this, but One of our full-time staff members, Pastor Elder Matt, is going to be starting a recovery sabbatical starting on December 1st and running through to the end of February. And a couple months ago, he had a heart attack of some sense, and this last week he just had a a successful heart or uh, angiogram. Um, So he's doing okay, but one of our church policies is that every six years or so, um, staff members are entitled to a sabbatical to seek the Lord for growth, for equipping, and for um, coming back energized and matured for the service of the church. And so it seemed wise to us and to the Lord. We believe that now he would be released with many of our church um, regular activities diminished for a season, as well as for a chance to just lay down the burdens of uh, ministry which are good burdens, but they are real burdens, and to allow him time to recover as well as to grow in the Lord. So just so you know, starting December 1st, Matt is released from all of his church responsibilities and with, with the agreed mission for at least the first month just to be resting, to be with his family, to be seeking the Lord for um, just himself personally, and then we'll pick up in January with more of the intensive um, growth time of it. But what can we be doing as a church? One, we can be praying for Matt. Um, a sabbatical is, a time, is, is actually a missional time to connect with the Lord, and so we want God's best plan for Matt and his family during this time that these 90 days-ish would be used effectively for the kingdom and for God's purpose. Um, you can send Matt some encouragements. His sabbatical doesn't technically start until December 1st, and so you've got a couple days. If you just want to send him some encouragement, some appreciation, that would be a wonderful thing. Um, I'm sure that it would it would actually just be a good ministry to him to hear from the church in a positive way during this time. And then from there, um, we just want to really respect the boundaries of a sabbatical. Often with a sabbatical, people will actually go to another place, like another country, just so that they can have some physical distance from the pressures and the responsibilities that they've been used to carrying. Uh, but that's not possible at this time. And so what we can do is just honor that... Um, he is having this devoted time to the Lord. And so we want to give him as much space as possible, though I know he wants to connect with people for friendship too. So. If you have any questions, you can talk to me, talk to Greg. Also, as a church, we can just be really mindful. Matt carries a ton of the the work around here, and so that load is going to have to be spread over the other staff as well as the church. And so now is a great time to be um, willing to contribute and to be doing our best as well as, excuse me, just gracious with us as we transition into moving around some of our responsibilities so that we can still be doing a good job for Calvary Chapel. All right, announcement completed. Um, so we got a cat, and if you've been around here for a while, whenever we don't have people in the room, I tend to tell stories about Scratchy Cat, which up until this week was just an imaginary creature, but now we actually do have our own Scratchy Cat at the Belfour household, and fortunately, this cat's attitude comes with as much contempt and willingness to scratch people as the original fictional scratchy cat so i think everyone but me has felt the claw of of our new um, barn cat and but we've all been despised by a creature that knows that our existence isn't worth anything compared to its next meal so we're all really happy about scratchy cat but the real scratchy cat but you know i sat down with scratchy cat and what i'm about to say here might be totally made up so but i sat down with scratchy cat and i learned about some cat history from Scratchy Cat. As I was petting Scratchy Cat and as he was um, fainting to bite me and trying to let me know that he both loved and hated what I was doing, um, he told me the story of from cat history about where cats learn to hate water. This kind of a, a truism with cats is that they don't like water. Maybe you have a cat that loves water. Maybe you owned the one cat in all of human history that was a strong swimmer. But most cats are known to hate water. And I learned from Scratchy Cat, the tale of where this all started. And it all goes back to the story of Noah's Ark. You'll remember the story of Noah's Ark where God was sending a flood over the world. We'll read more about this from Scripture. And and Noah had to gather into this ark all the creatures of the world in order to preserve them through the flood. And that involved having a pair of cats going onto the ark. And so... The cats were on the ark and they were kind of waiting and then the rain started coming. You remember this, God shut Noah into the ark with all the animals were there, the elephants were there, the giraffes were there, Um, you know, Noah brought the elephants to the the floating zoo and all that good stuff that these stories that the Donut Man has forced us to memorize and that it will never leave our brain forever and ever, amen. And the cats were on the ark too and to start off with they loved it. I'm told, you know, there's lots of nooks and crannies to explore, lots of little creatures to chase after, though they were discouraged by Mrs. Noah from actually killing and eating them. Um, there were lots of big animals to pretend like they weren't there and like they could take them in a fight, just like cats like to pretend. And so there was all this, this fun for the cats. But one day during the flood, as the waters were rising, as the rain was falling down, um, great 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 granddaddy scratch was wandering around and he saw noah open one of the windows of the ark just to look out and see the waters and great 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 granddaddy scratch um thought hey i should explore out there because it seems like cats have a hard time not darting out of a door or a window when it's open they just got to get out there and so he jumped out there and suddenly he found himself on the outside of the boat in the way in the wind In the rain. And he was just hanging on to the side of the boat as the waves went up and down and the rain poured down with his awesome super sharp um, razor claws dug into that gopher wood holding on for dear nine lives. And he was just holding on to it. And, and it was just crazy because the, the waves were going up and they would crash over great great granddaddy scratch and he was holding on with all his claws for dear life. He didn't want to die and he could see his, his lives counting down in front of his eyes. There goes one, I'm down to eight. There goes two, I'm down to seven. He's holding on for dear life and he begins to mew like only cats can mew. That, that sound they make when they're either hungry, bored, angry, tired, um, or just wishing there was somebody around to ignore. And they just, he made that mewing sound and after doing that for a while Noah finally opened up the window and said what are you doing out here and grabbed that cat by the scruff and hauled it inside and threw it inside and the cat came in now the surprise twist of this story is that the cat actually didn't mind it it was kind of an adventure being outside being in the rain being hit by waves that was kind of cool But what happened was that the cat left a puddle on the ground of all the drippings. And then the next thing the cat knew is there was this smelly, tongue-lolling-out-of-its-face dog lapping up the water in front of it and stepping in that puddle. And the cat decided, me and the dog can never share anything again because I'm too good for that dog. And so the cat decided to hate water for the rest of all of its progeny's existence just because a dog touched the puddle in Noah's Ark. That's the story. As I heard it, you might believe me. You might not believe me. I totally just made that up, so please don't believe me. The rest of what I'm about to say is true, and it doesn't involve cats. But um, we're still going through a crazy time. And one of the reasons I was thinking about the story of Noah's Ark is because Noah's story takes about 10 minutes to tell in a Sunday school class, but in real life it lasted for like over a year. It was a very long um, experience for Noah from the days the first waters fell until he finally got out of the ark. It was not a short experience. Like our experiences are not turning out to be short experiences, but why don't we read some of the story of Noah's ark, starting in chapter 6 of Genesis This is chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Maybe we should stop, stop there. This is God's evaluation of what the human heart is like, apart from grace. He looks into the heart of every living person and he says... It just keeps producing evil. And he's going to do something about it. So I'll read that again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Skipping to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And he goes on to describe how to make the ark as well as filling it with the animals. And it says, verse 21, Also take with you every sort of food that is to be eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. And verse 22 says, And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Verse 6 of chapter 7 says Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that were not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows and the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to its kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature... They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh, in which there is the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all the flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord continued—sorry, the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. The birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils is the breath of life, died. And he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal and creeping thing and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. Our mission statement as a church for Calvary Chapel is that we live to love and worship God and to multiply passionate, obedient disciples of Jesus, and to proclaim the kingdom by his Holy Spirit, by His Word and the Holy Spirit. I think I've got the wordings right. We often argue about the His part. But this is our mission, is to love God and to worship him and to multiply disciples, passionate and obedient disciples, and to proclaim his kingdom through his word and his Holy Spirit. And one of the things that kind of dawned on me this week as I was praying for a message is that I have never been discipled in how to go through the judgment of God. Have you? I think this is what's going on right now. Now, I'm not a prophet, and you can totally disagree with me, but I actually think the world is going through a judgment of God, not the same as what Noah went through, but similar to what Noah went through. And this is what I mean when I mean a judgment of God, okay? A judgment of God consists of this. It's a a season or a moment in time where God does something. It's usually a hardship or a calamity or a disaster that punishes human pride, that is intended to humble hard hearts and is also a setup for future salvation. Okay, so this is is how I understand biblical judgments from God. It is events, catastrophes, hardships, disciplines, trials that are intended to do many things. Number one, to punish human pride. Number two, to humble hard hearts. And number three, that they happen in order to set up a future salvation. And you can see some of this in the story of Noah. From what we read, why did God set the flood? It wasn't because he just forgot to turn off the taps one day. It wasn't because he lost control of the world. It wasn't because um, he mismanaged earth and heaven. The Bible says he looked over the world... And human hearts from the very center of our thinking and feeling was evil against God. And he specifically mentions violence throughout the earth. People were attacking each other. People were killing each other. People were beating each other. And so God sent the flood in order to punish that pride, in order to um, have a just action from heaven against what people were doing. Have you ever said something was unfair have you ever said something's not right? You watch something, you say, "Ah, oh, that's not right. Somebody needs to do something about that." That those moments in our heart where we cry out for justice, for things to change, for bad behavior to start, stop and good behavior to be done, for right things to happen and wrong things to be stopped, that desire is a human desire that we have because we're made in the image of God. The, the desire for justice and the desire to take action against injustice, the desire for righteousness and the desire to take action against wickedness starts in the heart of the holy just God. And there are times in human history where he takes action on this stuff, Usually he's just very patient he turns a patient eye because he's working on spreading the church throughout the world and he wants to bring salvation to sinners and not just judge but there are times when god sends judgment into the world in order to respond to human pride and human criminality and you know what if any of us have ever said um We wish that we could do something about some wrong behavior. In one sense, we've given God permission to do that because if God sees stuff that shouldn't be happening and we see stuff and we want to change things and stop things and transform things, then obviously we can't condemn God when he takes action, when he decides it's time to send in the troops, when he decides it's time to take action. But this is what the story of Noah was, and we can forget this because we often get the Sunday school... Story, which is more about how exciting it would be to be trapped in a boat with a giraffe and not about the fact that it was a divine punishment against human unbelief, human pride, and human sin that impacted the entire planet. It was a judgment. But judgments also have this desire to produce humility, this desire to not break people first, but break hearts first, to not just... um, Wipe away humanity, but transform humanity. And the judgments of God regularly have this desire to bring about a humble heart. And so I've been reading through lots of Bible. It's my coping mechanism for these tough times is just to be consuming massive amounts of scripture. Daily, sometimes hourly. And I came ap- across this passage from Amos. And Amos is a judgment book. It's a book about a time where God is warning his people that judgment is coming because of their hard hearts and because of their sin. And essentially because the people of God were no different than any of the unbelieving nations around them. And so God is going to discipline them. He's going to send a time of hardship, disaster, calamity, struggle, and discipline in order to, he was to bring about justice but also to try to touch their hearts and to humble them. And this is starting in verse 6 of chapter 4 of Amos. This is what God says. He says, "I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me," declares the Lord. Cleanness of teeth means you don't have anything to eat. He said I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet 3 months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city And no rain to another city. One field would have rain and the other on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew and many gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent amongst you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. And carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And you can just hear His heart. He's saying "These, these hardships keep coming upon you, and I'm sending them. And my whole purpose is that you would. Stop ignoring me and stop resisting me and humble yourself and turn to me and cry out to me and ask me for salvation and I would bring it. But no matter what hardships come your way, you won't return to me. You won't humble yourselves. You won't turn away from your rebellion. You won't do it. And So I'm just reading this to say, I don't know if this is the same for us now, but you can see from history that part of God's intention for hard seasons in Israel were just to get at their hearts to get at their hard hearts and to give them time and opportunity and impetus to want to humble themselves, and often they wouldn't. And a third reason why judgments come upon the earth from the hand of God, and we read about a couple weeks ago with, with Jeremiah, it's so that God could set things up for a much greater salvation. Um, sometimes things need to change, and sometimes the only way to get our prayers for revival and for repentance and for restoration and the spread of the church is first for bad things to happen. And so remember, this is what Jeremiah, the hated Jeremiah, I always think of him as the hated Jeremiah because I don't know if any prophet was more hated than Jeremiah. He always said what people didn't want to hear. It just happened to be God's word. The hated Jeremiah wrote this. He says, "'For thus says the Lord,' When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, meaning Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. There's that hardened heart, humbled. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And you can see this was in the midst of a fierce judgment where the people were exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. And God's intention from, from the very earliest days they went into was to say, this is a setup for something better. This is a setup for something better. This is a setup for something better. If you'll seek me, if you'll have faith in me, if you'll trust me, it will be better when I'm done than it was when I started. And so I think that, you know, if anybody reads their Bible, they know that judgments have come in human history. You can't undo it. God is a God who judges and he has judged in history. And I see these three things happening in God's judgment. He does need to bring justice against sin. He needs to punish human pride. He also wants to humble hard hearts so that we can turn to the Lord and his judgments are a setup for salvation. And that's who Noah was. Noah was the setup for salvation. The point is that Noah would start a new humanity that that isn't given to violence like the old humanity was. Unfortunately, the problem of sin wasn't cured in Noah and he became the first man to make wine and the first man to make, to get drunk with wine, and that impacted Canaan and his family line after that. But this, I think, is a reality. And if you read the Bible, the judgments of God come in a few different forms. One, it can be a natural disaster like the flood. Not every natural disaster is necessarily like a biblical judgment, but it can come in that form. Sometimes God uses humans for judgment, like he'll send armies against armies or he'll use governments to do these things. And sometimes he'll also use plagues, he'll use sicknesses, he'll send diseases on people as a form of judgment. And I'm thinking particularly about that one time that David did a census of the people. And the form of punishment that came on David and Israel for doing the census was God had commanded them not to do, was that um, sickness came into, into Israel. And so you look at a time like this, and you just kind of wonder, well, we have a few of the hallmarks of, of the judgment of God. We have a sickness that's a worldwide event. Um, it could be worse. It could be better. But it is a worldwide event that we're dealing with. It's, is this the first time in human history that like, the whole world is dealing with, with a, a fast-spreading virus? Possibly. Have we been successful at stopping it? Not really. It seems like it's got this like unstoppable judgment vibe to it even though it could be much worse. Is there a human factor involved in this? Yeah, probably. Is some of the problem how people are trying to deal with this? Maybe. Does it feel like you can fight with governments all day and feel oppressed by them? Absolutely. Um, And is there natural disasters happening? For some people, yes. I think around here in Manitoba, every winter is almost a natural disaster. Anytime you leave your house, you can die. And I joke about that, but it is true that almost every year somebody's car breaks down on the road in Manitoba and they die trying to get to the nearest house or something like this. And so, and I'm not sure how winter weather impacts the spread of the virus. That's something that almost nobody's talking about, but this is the first time in human history that our country has gone into winter with something like this. And I don't hear anybody asking the question, how is just cold weather contributing to this? I don't know, maybe not at all. Does anybody know besides the Lord? Anyhow, I think if someone wanted to, they could take this time and see it through the lens of a biblical judgment from God and, and go through, is human pride being punished? I think so, because all the world that doesn't want to deal with God is finding out that they are not in control of the world. Is this a time for the humbling of hard hearts? You bet. No one is in control. No one's getting what they wanted. The only certain thing we have is that God answers prayer through Jesus Christ, and it's a great time to be super humble. Is this a setup for salvation? Absolutely. I'm expecting the church to be much stronger and much bigger after this is all done as people have faith in Jesus and do their job as Christians. That's my hope, and even if the church isn't bigger when someone declares that the last case is over with, I think we'll be definitely primed for the spread of the kingdom if we will have faith and if we hope in the Lord and are ready to do our jobs. So, kind of looking at the life of Noah, who went through the first big worldwide judgment successfully, I think, How can we try to be good disciples during this time? Because, think about this, 30 years from now, some group of young Christians may come to you and say, hey, it looks like there's this worldwide disease going around again. We heard that you went through COVID-19. What would you tell us about how to follow Jesus through something like this? How would you answer them? Okay, it's a great question because all of a sudden it gets us out of the now and out of the pressures and into thinking I may have to help someone's life be better 40 years from now as they deal with something that I went through when I was middle aged. I hope before that makes me 80. I don't know. Okay, whatever. 30 years from now. But it's a great question. I was even talking with someone this last week who was saying that they were talking with their parents who went through the polio epidemic because apparently there was a time where it was not uncommon for young people to get polio and there's no cure for it at the time. And so they had to live through, as Christians, how do you live when tons of kids are getting polio and you don't totally know how they're getting it and all this stuff. And so we're not the first generation to go through something like this. We're just, we haven't yet in fact, if you look at human history, Canadians have not had a huge calamity for decades that we've really had to deal with, and so we are going through something, and many of the people who regularly would have gone through calamities are no longer here to kind of tell us, back in my day, this is what we did, and so we're figuring this out a bit more um, but someday you might be the person who has to give good leadership and advice to people going through something like what you went through. How would you answer them? You understand where I'm coming from here? So what are some ideas from the life of Noah? The first thing I think is really remarkable from the life of Noah is that he found favor from God. And I think this is the first advice for everybody who might be going through some kind of worldwide shaking. If you don't want to call it a judgment, you don't have to call it a judgment, but you can definitely look at Scripture like Hebrews and Revelation say. Sometimes God shakes the world to show what can stand and what isn't going to stand, to show what's Christ and not Christ. You could say that there's a shaking going on. The first and most important thing is to be seeking the Lord. This is why Noah got told to build the boat, and this is why Noah actually built the boat. He was a man of faith, and he had found favor with God. When God talked, Noah listened. This was the most amazing thing about Noah's story, is that God told him, build a boat, and Noah actually did it, because he was a man of faith. And so you can see, hey, now is a time, every time there's something huge going on, the first thing you need to make sure you're doing is that you're really right with the Lord and you're obeying him. And one of the first things that a judgment can do is it can make us very, very wanting to just stare at, at the people and events, right? This is, this is my challenge. This is maybe your challenge. You just want to look at the people. These people are doing it wrong and this situation is wrong and those people are messing things up and this person is the problem. And what I, how I think about it is that Um, Fallen humanity wants scapegoats. Fallen humanity wants to look at a terrible situation and ask... um, who is the person that needs to die to make this problem go away? Where is the virgin we can throw into the volcano to satisfy its wrath? Who is, the, who is the victim that we need to sacrifice and cannibalize to our demonic idols so that they will stop afflicting us with these diseases? This is how the fallen human heart works. We want a scapegoat. We want an easy solution that we can do violence against in order to make all our problems go away. And that's the, the issue is that that scapegoat has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know who has to die in order for this problem to be better? His name was Jesus. His name was Jesus. Jesus had to die, and that's why he was killed. They killed him in Jerusalem because the leaders decided if they could just kill him, all of the problems for Jerusalem would go away. They'd be safe from the Roman authorities. The crowds wouldn't be rebelling against them anymore. If they could just get Jesus dead on a cross and humiliate him in front of everybody, then all their problems would go away. Wrong. Wrong. The only thing that solves problems is the shed blood of Jesus and people believing in him, filled with the Spirit, obeying God. That's what the first thing everybody needs when a judgment comes is we need favor from God. We need the grace of God. We need to put our trust in God. We need to deal with our sin and not think that if we could just kill somebody else, all our problems would go away. Because this, you know, this is the thing, like Canada's getting rocked, maybe Canada's going to get destroyed. Was Canada perfect before COVID hit? Was Canada great before COVID hit? One of the only countries in the world with no laws restricting any mother from killing her child inside of her womb? Were we innocent before COVID hit? Were we pure? Were we safe before COVID hit? Before COVID hit? Working on making sure that anybody who wanted medical assistance in death could get it, so that right now we have this weird situation where you can't go visit old people because you might kill them, but if they ask somebody to kill them so that they don't have to endure this, they get front-of-the-line service. This weird stuff that's happened. like, were we perfect before? We already were in a culture of if you could just kill people, everything would be better. And it didn't protect us from COVID and it's not going to save us from COVID. What we need is God. We need God. We need the mercy of God. We need the grace of God. And you know what, saints? Even if nobody else acts or thinks or feels in a way that gets the grace of Jesus Christ in this time, you make sure you're getting it. You make sure you're believing. You make sure you're trusting. You make sure you're believing God's word. That's all you're primarily responsible for. Even if you're like Noah and you're the only one, you and your family making it through this you make sure you're making it through this amen this is your first responsibility and 20 years from now if you get to the privilege of discipling someone through a major catastrophe you start off by saying to them whatever happens you make sure you're tight with jesus through faith that's the first thing And you make sure you are ready to obey Jesus no matter what. It's about Jesus. This is about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. What happens in our hearts is about Jesus. The thoughts in our mind is about Jesus. What's going on in our families is about Jesus. What's happening down the road is about Jesus. What's happening in our government is about Jesus. What's happening in Canada is about Jesus. What's happening in the world is about Jesus. And it's about the spread of the church throughout the world This is God's great plan that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the great plan that people from every nation and tribe and tongue would be gathered together at the foot of the Son of God and the line of Judah and the Lamb that was slain to worship and adore him forever. This is the plan. And COVID-19 is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring this plan about. I don't know how. And I'm not even going to guess, but it is true. This is serving our master. And so many of us have prayed, I wish Canada would just come to Jesus. And you know, I was talking with somebody this week and I I was just convicted in my heart that I, I had come to a place where I had zero faith that Canada could be saved again, that it could be a nation that names Jesus again because our hearts are so hard. We're so rich and we're so protected, we're, we just don't need God. And so, if somebody says, God, would you convince us we need your son, Jesus? Are we going to judge how he might bring that about? This is my hope. you know so many people who just don't even begin to think they need god and wouldn't you rather have anything happen so that they would know they need jesus before they die and meet him face to face with no grace and no blood and no cross and no righteousness wouldn't you lose your house and your car and your comfort and your lifestyle and your freedoms for that This is about Jesus, and we need to do everything we can to make sure that we are trusting and obeying him in the fruit of the Spirit at all times. Number two, we need to get ready to ride the waves. Noah and his family were the first, as far as I know, experiencers of, uh, what do you call it, seasickness in human history. Their first experience of being saved by God through judgment was to learn to unload their stomachs all over the side of the boat, we hope maybe inside of the boat. Going through the judgments of God, going through his trials for the church means hardship. We won't be exempted from it. We will experience it along with people regularly, maybe not to that same extent, and definitely not from the heart as we trust in God, but we go through the junk. And so Noah had to go through the junk of the flood. He had to go through the rain and he had to go through the waves and he had to go through the seasickness. And so as Christians going through major upheavals, we need to raise our expectations that we are going to suffer along regular people, just like regular people, because we are regular people. And you know what? Part of that is to get us to be in a place where we can sympathize and empathize with others as a way of reaching out to them. For many of us, Second Corinthians has become a place we're turning to to try to figure out our lives afresh. And this is what the Word of God says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. What should be our expectation as we go through the afflictions of these times? That by faith we will receive the comforts of the Father so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, which we do, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And if we are, com- if we are afflicted, this is Paul writing as an apostle for the church, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we're comforted, it is for your comfort which, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer, and our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And this is one of the things that a Christian can be confident of. All our sufferings are equipping for doing good to others. All of them. All of them. By faith in Christ, all of our sufferings are equipping to do good to others. And I don't know if there's ever been a time when just everybody is hungry for some kind of comforting, some kind of affection, some kind of acknowledgement. The fields are white unto harvest for people hungry for the comforts of God to come through Christians. But the cost of that is to be afflicted along with everybody else. Sometimes worse. But Noah had to ride the waves should be our expectations to ride the waves. Number three, pick up your shovel. This is where this whole message started. I was thinking about the story of Noah. I was thinking about his long lockdown and how that was how God was saving him. I'm not saying that's the same for us. I was thinking about it. I was thinking, man, that guy had to shovel so much manure every single day. Like, can you imagine... Young man over there, if your daily job, you were responsible for the rhinos and the elephants and the cows and the pigs. That was your job. And every morning, it's like, here's breakfast, we're going to have our family Devos, and you've you got to make that poop over the side. Like, the only place to live in the world was the inside of a pig barn without any running water. That was their experience. And I was just thinking to myself, the salvation of God stank and the salvation of God was full of crap, literally. It was just full of handling manure and chucking dung. Salvation, chucking dung, 150 days or a year. I don't even know. It was like a year. If it wasn't a year, smash that subscription button button, button hit like and in the comments, correct me below. I think we may have taken the comments off, but I was just thinking about how Noah had to just shovel. Every day, shoveling manure, shoveling manure, shoveling manure, more manure, more manure. Oh, great, the camel's got diarrhea again. Stop eating the elephant's poop, camel, so you don't get diarrhea because you're getting it on the walls and it's splashing onto the ceiling, and this is just gross. And you go in and you got the bucket of seawater over the side and splashing it up there. There's no soap. There's no disinfectants. There's no... Full X or whatever the carpet stuff is. There's poop. There's so much poop. So much. Can you imagine the poop? Can you imagine the poop? There be and that was salvation. That was the best. That was their best life now. And I think that there's. I think I, I'm just thinking like. That's how you get through judgment. You just set your heart on finding the kindness of God as you shovel, and you do what you, you do your job. You do your job. What was your job before this started? Do you still have your job? Do your job well, dads. Dad, well, pick up your shovel and shovel the dadding. Moms, mom, well, pick up your shovel and shovel the momming. Kids, you're still in school, it's changed. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. But pick up your shovel, find a window, chuck it out the window. You don't have to eat the poop during a judgment. You don't have to roll in the poop during a judgment. You don't have to throw the poop at anybody during a judgment. You can shovel it out the window where it belongs, but there will be poop. Not drowning in the flood, but drowning in poop. Have I said poop enough, kids? Are you laughing? Are you did your parents shut it off? You wouldn't want the parents shut off. Pastor Rob said poop and crap and manure and dung all on Sunday. I'm making a point. I'm making a point here. But there 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 is just so much faithful to do these days. Just regular faithfulness. Just washing the dishes and changing a diaper and just, just just, doing faithful. And Noah's salvation was was like just shoveling for months upon months. And Number four, here's where we get a bit trickier. Using your tools. God gave Noah a way to show his faith and bring about salvation in his day, and that was to make the ark, right? He had got all this gopher wood, he had the plants, he had to do it. And we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us use what we have to our hands to get through this time. Now, one of the weird things about this time is that it's difficult in every situation to tell how much is the virus the problem in your life and how much is the government the problem in your life and how much are we just being riding the waves along with everybody else and that's the problem, or how much is the church actually being singled out for something like persecution at this time and that is one of the conflicts you have genuine people saying we're not being persecuted we're riding the waves we're going to submit you have other genuine believers saying this this isn't right we can't participate with this i get it it's one of the divisive things that people are throwing the manure at each other over but I can respect the positions, and I definitely do. As it turns out, it's like we've got this scripture war between Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities, and Hebrews, what is it, 10? um, Don't cease to meet, and the different groups are saying these are the main ones we're doing, and they they oppose in their actions. I I get it. I totally get it. And um, what we've been doing as a church is we've been doing an intentional participation with the health orders, with keeping an eye on if things start getting dodgy or whatever. I don't know if they've gone over the line to dodgy yet. Some people think they have, some people think they haven't. But okay, let's just do some training through judgment here. Let's just say that some of the judgment starts rising up and it is intentional government suppression of the faith. What are our tools? I would say right off the bat, and here's my controversy moment, here's what you can get upset about and I would say right off the bat that open rebellion against the government is not the first response for that you see in the scriptures to times where it seems like the government is trying to suppress the faith. It's a possible one, but it's not necessarily the first one. So biblically, um, a response to feeling like the government's abusing its power could be to use... Legal action against it. And so, my example for that would be the Apostle Paul, as he was often preaching and causing problems, and people would want to oppress him. He would regularly mention the fact that he's a Roman citizen in order to, to work the legal system, so to speak. So, he would sometimes say, Yeah, I've got a right to not get tortured here. And he would back off because he did have a right to get tortured. Remember that one time he was jailed in Philippi and then he was imprisoned and nobody asked him if he was a Roman citizen and he didn't say anything. He just kind of took the torture. But when they wanted to get rid of him, then he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, you're not just going to send me out of here discreetly out the back door. I would like an official pardon from the governors of the city and you can walk me out of the city. And then they really panicked because to do an injustice against a Roman citizen could provoke the, the anger of Rome against Philippi. And so they came and, oh, we're so sorry, sir, and please forgive us. And then, um, But there is a viable way of using legal avenues to resist that kind of stuff. And it's, you can see it happening in the States sometime um, in Manitoba, I've done some discussion with a lawyer and he doesn't think we have much of a leg to stand on as far as resisting the health orders. And even if we did try to do that, we'd probably lose in court and it would cost much money and take a long, long, long time because Canada is not, doesn't have a really great reputation for doing things quickly, legally. So it's been semi-explored, but it's not super hopeful. Maybe just because of our law, how our laws work or what, but there you go, it's been explored. Another avenue for us is to take our faith underground, which is typically what they would do. You know, one of the things that isn't triumphant about the Christian faith is that Jesus taught us to often run away from a fight. I don't know if you remember any of those those scriptures but it's like if they persecute you in one place just go to another place jesus taught about like the fall of jerusalem he says when you see bad things happening in jerusalem just it's time to leave just you just go he often taught us to to dodge the direct conflict which can seem like uh, weakness and cowardice because they're often running away but that's what jesus often taught people to do people won't listen to you you shake off the dust of your of your sandals on them you go find someone who will listen to you And so there is a viable option of actually taking our faith underground. I don't know if that's a great thing to do during these times, because you could still spread COVID. It's really spreadable. But if all of a sudden COVID's gone, but the restrictions aren't, um, uh, this could be an option for a church to do, is to just go underground. And so it, it could be stuff like finding out if somebody has a cabin in the woods and going and meeting there and just getting your faith done discreetly. It could mean finding interesting ways to gather somewhat manipulatively of the law. See, this is where I knew I was going to scandalize everybody, but it's true that the Christians did that. So, what's an example of that? Um, here, there's one story in Acts where Paul both honors the authorities and manipulates them into. At the same time, it's from the book of Acts, and I'll read this to you just to prove it, because right now you're wondering, who, where did Robert Balfour go? Where's your nice, tidy sermon that you're used to? So the Apostle Paul had been arrested for preaching the faith and was going on trial. It says this, this is the, um, and he's brought to- before the council. This is chapter 23, he says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting in judgment on me according to law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by him said, Would you revile the high priest of God? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your own people." And now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other was Pharisees, he cried out before the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. And they go on from there having this big fight. And you have this really interesting story, which I think is exemplary, where the Apostle Paul was wronged by the high priest, by being struck by the high priest, but still respected the high priest by stopping speaking badly about the high priest, but also saw that if he started a fight in the council, he could get them to let him go. And so he said the thing that would start a fight so that they'd stop putting him on trial and let him go. So I see in there, look, that welcome to complicated life. He's going through this trial and he is respecting the authorities by stopping reviling them while at the same time saying there's injustice going on and manipulates them by starting a fight amongst them so that he can get on with his preaching somewhere else. And then Paul later on when he's in danger of being arrested and killed, like assassinated as they bring him to Jerusalem, appeals to Caesar so that the legal system will take him from where he is over to Rome so that he can go and preach the gospel in Rome and bring the gospel to Caesar instead of just being sent over to Jerusalem. And so he, he is, he's working the system. And so I don't know if this would work, but here's an idea, and you know, don't, don't paste this on Facebook, but like, let's say for instance somebody owned a business and they temporarily hired their entire community group to come and clean that business one evening and they all tidied up stuff in the business while they were listening to worship music and there was like a team huddle at the beginning of this job of cleaning that they were getting paid for that they were going to give back to you or whatever. Like, can you work the system in order to express your faith? Totally. And Christians should feel free to do that. Um, I know somebody who came to faith because a really rich guy in another country started a coffee shop that was there to help students learn English and it just so happened that all the English speakers were missionaries from another country but it, because they were operating in a country that would have shut it down if it had anything to do with missions publicly. That's normal Christianity to operate like that. But it's not direct conflict. They're not just getting up there and saying down with the government. They're saying, okay, the government doesn't want to work with us. How can we be smart? How can we be creative? How can we still do our mission of spreading the church without starting a fight? Because the fights, uh, well, they do different things. So there's that. You can, we, can, we can work the system as we know the system. And maybe they'll keep changing the rules. And there you go. And, but you can also, if, if it's really clear that we've entered into a time of persecution, you can just take your faith totally underground. And you can try meeting in private, hiding it. Um, the church can try growing in its counter-surveillance tactics. Like, you know, if you're all going to meet in the basement of the church, then some people have to arrive as delivery people, bringing toilet paper, and some people have to arrive five minutes later. Nobody arrives at the same time. Everyone has staggered arrivals, and you wear dark clothes, and you have to meet somewhere else, and maybe not even at the church. The church becomes this empty shell of itself where we pretend to be doing everything just like that, but we have this secret life hidden in basements and in people's houses that live out in the struck no one's ever loved the Struck so much as when it's the only place where you can have a church meeting. That's on the table. But I don't know if that's the issue right now as long as the, the COVID's around. It's a mess. This is a mess. But I'm just telling you, if it does turn into persecution city, this is how Christians tend to respond first before they just have open rebellion. They, they tend to manipulate the system to spread the gospel, and then they tend to go underground to spread the gospel. And we can be encouraged. Like, years ago, there were lots of foreign missionaries in China, and then when the Communist Party took over, they kicked out all of the foreign missionaries. I think it was the communists. It may have been the government before them. But there was this great despair as all these four missionaries were kicked out of the country. And what happened was that Jesus moved in with his spirit, and he was taking the little bits of faith that were still there, and he started spreading the church, and they called it the house church movement, which was like 100% underground, and there were lots of arrests, and then there were lots of people getting saved in the prisons. But the, the one of the greatest church movements in the last 100 years all happened under oppressive government where Real faith was illegal, but they went underground. They didn't fight the government directly. They took their faith underground because the goal is not to beat the government. The goal is to make disciples of all nations. That's the goal, and we must not get blown off course. The goal is to win people to Christ and make disciples, and whether the government loves you or hates you is just... The weather, it changes. But what never changes is Christ's commitment to use every believing heart to help spread his kingdom wherever their situation is. If we're under God's favor because we want to obey him, if we're willing to ride the waves and take the shocks, if we're willing to shovel the manures of the day with hope and faith, God will use every single believing heart during this time. But we have to keep our eyes on the mission. The mission is the spread of the church. The mission is the spread of the gospel. The mission is the spread of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the mission. That is the mission. That's the mission. That's the mission. It's always the mission. If we can do some political good along the way, hallelujah. Hallelujah. But it's got to be under the goal of the mission of the spread and not as lip service as like your heart conviction needs to be. I exist to spread the knowledge of the glory of God and to win disciples and to train people in the faith. And that's why I'm so happy today. Amen? And I think if we do this, if we follow Noah's example, find favor with the Lord, go through the waves, do our daily business, and use the tools that he's given us to get through this stuff with faith, then we can get through this in such a way that we will have great things to help other people do the same trials we've gone through at a later date. So why don't we pray the band can start getting ready to come up. Father, I just, I just give you this. Maybe I'm totally wrong. I don't think so. But God, I pray that you would help your church to know how to win disciples and spread the church and spread the kingdom during their days, Lord. Lord, and this is such a complicated time. I've never tried to think through a situation more complicated than this one. It is wearisome. And yet I know that if I do good to the person in front of me, it's welcomed. So Lord, would you help us? Father, I pray your blessing over our leaders. I pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on them. Lord, we need so much mercy. Lord, we don't deserve it, but even Abraham prayed for mercy over Sodom and Gomorrah. ...that your judgment wouldn't come upon them. And so, Lord, I pray for mercy. I pray for mercy over Canada, and you would save us. I pray for mercy over Manitoba, and you would save us. I pray for mercy over our government, and you would save us. I pray for mercy over all of our churches, and you would save us. I pray for mercy over all the pastors, and you would save us. I pray for mercy over all our teachers and nurses and uh Support staff in every way and you would save us. I pray for the lost and you would save us. I pray for the suicidal, for mercy and you would save us. I pray for our lost youth for mercy and you would save us, God. I pray Father for our political realm for mercy and you would save us. I pray for social media for mercy and you would save us, God. I pray that you would raise up the name of Jesus in every way for the glory of God and you would save us and you would show us your hope and your salvation. And Father, I need wisdom and the elders need wisdom and the church needs wisdom because you know things change every few hours these days. And so Lord, would you lead us in the path of everlasting life for your glory in Jesus' name, Amen. amen.